being such a wonderful God. Thank you that your word teaches us, it encourages us, it instructs us, and it convicts us. So we pray this morning as we look through your word, God, that you would use it in ways that we just couldn't imagine because it's your words from your Holy Spirit. We pray in your son's name. Amen. All right, this morning we are continuing on. You're probably going to hear me say that for over a year. As we continue on in our series, that we're, we're in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we're coming today to, the, to chapter 2 of Matthew. And we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about what is usually talked about in a couple months. Okay, we're going to talk about a little Christmas time, little Christmas time sermon here. We are going to look at the story of the wise men or the magi and them, how they followed the star to baby Jesus. So you know, you know where I'm headed. So you, just so you know where I'm headed, I kind of want to lay the groundwork right away where I'm headed in this sermon this morning. What I'm headed is I believe that the story, the story of the magi shows us the difference between responding to God's gift of grace, this unmerited, this undeserved favor that he showers on us in so many ways. What this story does, it shows us the difference between responding to God's gift of grace with fear versus faith. Versus fear versus faith. And we're going to see, I believe, how that plays out in our life and how we respond either in fear or in faith. So let's just kind of, let's jump right in to the story. But let's just, just do it with first ball. We're going to go kind of, not verse by verse, but kind of. Let's look at the first two verses. First two verses say this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea on the, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, so the first thing we see here in this story is that sometime, we don't know how long, but sometime after Jesus had been born, these wise men, or magi is what they were called back then, they came from the east, from far east, and we'll see in a minute, to find out where the king of the Jews had been born. So who are these guys? Who are these wise guys? Who are these guys that we hear so much about, especially during the Christmas season? We're going to see pictures of them. We're going to see little statues of them pretty soon, sitting out in front of mangers and things like that. But who are these guys and where are they coming from? So let me talk, let's talk about these magi for a minute. First of all, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin for many of you, maybe your favorite Christmas carol. Okay, just so you know, there's absolutely no mention in the Bible of there being three wise men, okay? There's also no mention in the Bible of three kings either. So, sorry, but that's, that's just the way, that's the way it is for a matter of, the truth is that it could have been, really, the truth is it could have been up to a dozen magi, and they could have had a massive entourage, and they probably did, have a massive entourage with them. Um, the notion of these kings, why we get the we three kings, you guys probably know it probably came from the idea that when they came, they gave three gifts, and they were pretty amazing, expensive gifts, usually gifts that were given to royalty. So I think that's kind of where people came from in this whole idea of um, with the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these wise men uh, or magi, these guys were really smart. Okay, they were very learned men. Most likely they came from some ancient pagan, ancient pagan uh, priestly society. Uh, that's where their background was. They specialized in astrology and in the interpretation of dreams and in divination or what we would call today occultic practices. 
things that back then actually were blatant violations of the Old Testament law. Uh, kings and rulers would consult them all the time for advice and for counsel. And the Jews actually back then, they wanted nothing to do with the Magi because they saw them as absolute pagan false prophets, okay? Now, we see that these guys came to Jerusalem from the east, which really, what this would be, the east would be Babylon back then, okay? It was Babylon. Today, it would be modern-day Iraq. I have a little map for you for those that are, are visual people that it helps out. So these guys, they took a train, they took the one, and they went to Jerusalem, because Bethlehem is just a little bit below their... Obviously, they didn't. Obviously, that was a long, long trek. Most likely, these guys traveled for at least four months to get to Jerusalem. This was no small trek whatsoever. And like I, like I said, the story of the Magi shows us the difference between responding to God's gift of grace with fear versus faith. So let's look at that. Let's, let's look at first at how the Magi responded to God's gift of grace with faith. Put those verses back up, verses one and two. Now, the Jews, we know that the Jews back then, they were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. This is something they were excited about. They knew it was gonna happen. Remember, we talked about this before. It's been 400 years since God had spoken to anybody. There had been no hurrying God anywhere. So the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come, and he was the one who was going to deliver them from the tyranny of the oppression that they were under, under Roman rule and was going to establish this new Israel, this new kingdom, and the, the, he would, the Messiah would rule on the throne for eternity. So they were waiting for this time. They knew that it was coming. Yet these magi, they weren't insiders to the Jewish faith at all. They, they knew they were smart, but they, they, they weren't insiders. They weren't accepted at all. at all. These guys were definitely outsiders by their race, by their profession, and by their lifestyle. I, one thing that struck me, it's interesting that in telling the story of the birth of Christ, I mean, the most anticipated, promised Jewish event in history, what, who does Matthew highlight? <laughs> Matthew goes and the highlights, he puts the focus on pagan foreign astrologers who dabbled in questionable practices. Isn't that just wild? That's his emphasis in the whole Jesus is born kind of thing. You got to understand, put ourselves, remember we talked about how this, Matthew was writing to typically a, mainly a Jewish mindset. He was writing to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, and you would think he would leave out sketchy people, but he emphasizes sketchy people. I think that's so interesting. And what I see this is as such a tremendous uh, picture of God's gift of grace. This undeserved, unmerited favor and mercy reaching out to people that, we would, that normally would be on the outside. What a great thing. What, that's what God's mercy and his grace does. This shows us, really it shows us that God wants all people to be drawn to his son. Not just people that seem to fit. You know why we do that? Like, oh, they make a good Christian. 
No, man, if, if they would just become a Christian, oh, man, you know, that's not the way God, God doesn't see it at all. How often times have we gone, oh, do you hear who became a Christian? You go, what? You know, you go, really? That's what God specializes in, though, and that's what's so cool about his grace. They don't have to fit some kind of criteria, and we see that God uses what would, we would possibly consider unconventional methods to draw people. I think back then, if you told the Jews, listen, the Messiah is going to be shown and summoned. You're going to know how he is, where, where he is, because you're going to look at a star. And there's going to be dreams involved. I mean, all these unconventional things that God is, and Matthew is really highlighting all of these things. Because for the Magi, their whole world revolved around the importance of searching for meaning and for understanding in the stars and through interpreting dreams. And these are the very things God uses to draw them to Jesus. We need not forget that this is how God works. Things that we would never think of. I love this because the truth is we all know, those who have been in church for a long time, we know that there's only one way to God. One way, that's it, Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody gets to God through me. I am the only way. But what this story tells us and shows us that God is willing to use all sorts of different ways and methods to draw people to himself, because there's many ways to Jesus, many ways. People think this is what it looks like. You've you, you got to hear this message. You've got to pray this prayer, and you've got to do this. Matthew's telling us that's not how it goes. I'm going to use all sorts of crazy ways to draw people. And if we polled people in this room and we talked about what drew you to Jesus, what was the event, what was the conversation, what was the feeling, what, what happened in your life to draw you to Jesus, we'd be all over the map, wouldn't we? I think we just assume that most people came to Jesus like I did. So not true. People are coming to Christ in so many ways because that's how God works, because God wants us to be unique. So he uses unique ways. Writer and theologian uh, Frederick Beekner, he wrote this. He says, there is no event so commonplace, but that God is present within it. Always hiddenly, always, always leaving you room to recognize him or not recognize him. So many ways that God is reaching out to us. So the idea that this special star now, I mean, I think we make a lot about this star. What was up with this star? The idea of that back then that a special star heralded the, heralded the birth of famous people, this was really widespread. You gotta know this is common. When people saw a special star or they saw stars aligned, they just assumed, oh, someone special or someone royal has been born. So it wasn't that outside of the box. Um, but the, what, so what, what, what they, God does is he uses this star to show the Magi, but we're not given a reason why. We don't know exactly why the Magi or how they connected the star to the birth of the king of the Jews. They said, we're here to find the king of the Jews. The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere how they knew that, but somehow they knew what this star represented. So the Magi respond in faith. They head out across the desert for who knows how, they didn't know how long. They were following a star. The star didn't say on it, follow me to Jerusalem. They just got their camels loaded and their people and they went. That's faith. They headed out across the desert believing that following that star would lead them to this newborn king. We're going to go. 
and they just go. And that's how faith works. Even when we aren't sure of the outcome, we still respond with action. Faith is trusting something that we can't completely prove, but we know that it's true. That's what faith is. I can't completely, I can't completely prove this. And that's what keeps us a lot of times from sharing with our faith with our friend. He goes, I can't 100% prove this. That's right. But do you believe it? It's, that's why it's called faith. I can't 100%, but I know that I know that it's true. Hebrews 11.1, 1. now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. Heck, the whole world would believe as we were able to say, here, here's my buddy Jesus, check him out. Go talk to him, Jesus. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Now, the second thing, let's look at the second thing. The second thing we see in the story is that King Herod responds to God's gift of grace with fear. Okay, notice Herod's initial reaction. His initial response in verse 3 here uh, of the Magi when they inquired. Look what he says. He says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, you understand this word troubled here? It means that he was extremely unsettled. He was shaken to the core. He was, in our words, freaked out. Herod was absolutely freaked out to hear this news. And here's what I want to do. I want to give, I want to give you a little picture of Herod here. There's a picture of him coming here. Now, to understand why he responded this way, it's important to get a little background on Herod. You got to understand who this guy was. He was the king of Judea, which was the southern portion of what, portion of what one time was independent Israel before it came under Roman rule. He was known as Herod the what? Anybody know? The Great. Exactly. He was known as Herod the Great. And he was known by Herod the Great for a number of things. One was his building escapade. He could build. This guy built cities and he built fortresses. They were beautiful, amazing things. He often taxed the people to starvation to do it, but he built amazing things. He also, one of the things he did is he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Herod was half Jewish. But in order to really keep the Jews that he was ruling happy and to gain favor with them, he remodeled the, the um, temple. And they say it was so amazing, like when the sun shone on it, people couldn't even look at it because of all the gold and everything. So he was amazing with all this stuff. He was a very influential leader. He was able to keep order for 40 years before Christ came by swiftly squelching any rebellion that came. He would, any, before it had any chance of rebellion, he would take care of it. He was a brilliant diplomatic leader. He was able to convince everyone from slaves to government officials that he could be trusted and that he would take care of them. This is a sly guy. He forged alliances with other kingdoms to secure peace and did great tribute to Rome. Yet probably the best way to describe Herod is that he was insecure and brutal. Herod the Great was insecure, and then he was brutal. He was extremely insecure about losing any of his power and was suspicious of anybody who threatened him. And because of his, <laughs> because of his insecurity, he had people executed all the time. It was an ongoing thing. 
in Judea to have people executed because of threatening fame. On separate, here's some things. On separate occasions, he had his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, one of his wives, and three of his four sons killed when he perceived that they were a threat to his power and authority. Family members. It was no big deal for him at all to kill a family member. When he believed one of his wives was having an affair, he ordered her and the supposed lover executed. Roman Emperor Augustus was even quoted as saying that if it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's who this guy was. Top it all off. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Herod, this is amazing, he left orders at the moment of his death that numerous Jewish nobility, when he died, that they would go out and they would arrest and they would gather and these, uh, put them in custody, these Jewish nobility, and he would have them executed at the moment of his death in order to guarantee that there would be mourning when he died. This is Herod the Great. This is, this is the kind of guy he is. So it's no wonder that Herod immediately freaks out when he hears that there is another king of the Jews besides him. He goes berserk. You see, his insecurity would not allow him to see that this king of the Jews, who this king of the Jews really was, who he really might be. There was no consideration whatsoever. He was a threat. Automatically, So instead of acting by faith and receiving this gift of God's grace that was right in front of his face, he reacts in fear and he seeks to take matters into his own hands. Now we see that it, all the verse also says that all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. You would be too if you were, absolutely, if you were ruled by an absolute tyrant like this. It's like, don't make dad mad. You know, that guy, don't, don't tick off, don't tick off the guy. Don't tick off the guy that, you know, holds the purse strings because they know what was going to happen. So let's not make him mad. Now we see in the, next four, in the next bunch of verses here, in verses four to six, that Herod takes, how he takes the matters into his own hands. Here's what he does. In verses four to six, he says this. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of, OG, of, of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, these, who are these guys? These chief, these chief priests and these scribes. They were a part of this thing called the Sanhedrin. And what these Sanhedrin were, basically, they were the Jewish Supreme Court, okay? They were the guys that had the ultimate authority over religious and civil and criminal matters, as long as it didn't encroach on Roman rule, okay? These guys would know exactly, they would know totally about this, um, this um, the, the words that, were, that, that they were looking for here, the, what, he, what he would want, what, who are you thinking about, this prophecy, he would know, they would know all about the coming Messiah. See what Matthew's doing here? He's doing something very interesting, in, in this, these verses that you see there, what he's doing is he's combining, combining two different prophecies concerning the Messiah. But he's, what he's doing also, what he's doing, he's incorporating the fulfillment of these, prof, of these prophecies into the text here. 
So let me look at these. Let's look at these really quick, real quick. These, there's two um, prophecies that um, Matthew is using, and he kind of tweaks them, you'll notice. The first one is found in Micah 5.2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, uh, from of old, from ancient days. And the next one he's incorporating in there is in 2 Samuel. It says, And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now, I don't know if you noticed it. Look at what Micah says here. Notice how Micah says, he's, Micah says, O Bethlehem Ephratah. Now, he's just saying, Bethlehem, here's where you're located. Who are too little among the clans of Judah. He's saying, you guys, I thought you guys are just small. You're just tiny. You're little. You're, in, you're this insignificant tribe. That's okay. That's okay. He said, now Micah is saying that they're insignificant and small. But look what Matthew does. Matthew emphasizes their importance, the importance of Judah. Because it is the birthplace of Bethlehem, because it's the birthplace of the king of kings, he's taking the prophecy as it's fulfilled, going, look what happened to you. You're so small, but look what God did with you. You're so insignificant, but look how God used you. And you guys, the things that you and I so often think are, or we deem as little, or we deem as insignificant, so often, these are the very things that the Lord wants to use. He sees as incredibly important in fulfilling in his plan and his purpose. And you know what? That includes you and I. That includes us. God wants to use every single one of us to influence our culture, to influence our families, to influence our church, our workplace, our cities. God wants to use all of us if we would only react to his amazing gift of grace in faith. As we go, oh my gosh, what you have lavished on me, I can't wait to let it go. You've been so good to me. You're so wonderful. I don't deserve this at all. How can I not share with people? How can I not love people that have done me wrong? How can I not want to be like Jesus that's responding in faith. That's what changes a family. That's what changes a church. That's what changes a community. It's responding in faith to God's grace going, I got to respond. I'm going to respond no matter, I don't know how long this hike is going to be, but I'm going to go. That's what he's saying here. He wants to use us. We need to stop allowing our insecure. I'm speaking to myself here. We need to stop allowing our insecurities and our fears to cause us to, us to think that we're too small or we're too insignificant to be a part of God's plan of drawing people to himself. I think so often we think that, oh, I'm not a, I'm not, I didn't go to Bible school or I, I'm not that smart in the Bible, things like that. How can God possibly use me? Or I know he wants to use me, but it's going to be on the sidelines. The story is saying totally different here. We need to stop believing that the lies that tell us that we're not smart enough, we're not spiritual enough, we're not outgoing enough to, make, to be a part of God's plan in drawing people to himself. We need to stop thinking that you don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know how much I've blown it. That disqualifies me. No. 
God, I mean, he's giving us a great example of men who were pagan astrologers living a life that was absolutely contrary to the Old, the Old Testament law. And God reaches out to them. And they are a part of the greatest story that we could ever hear about. Isn't that amazing? You, O Bethlehem, are no means least among rulers of Judah. You, O Marcia, are no means least amongst God's children to be able to to respond to his gift of grace and be used by him to draw people to himself. You believe that. I hope you guys believe that. You, Joey, are not least amongst God's children to be used as you respond to God's grace to have an influence on everybody around you. Phil. No, not Phil. No, no. no. Phil. (laughs) Phil, you are no means. Are you getting what I'm saying here? You are no means least among God's children to be able to respond to God's incredible gift of grace in faith and to be used by him to draw people to himself. That's what, these, that's what Matthew's doing here. He's taking a prophecy that's been fulfilled, two of them meshing them together and saying, isn't this amazing? For all of us, it is amazing. Now in verses seven and eight, Herod summons this magi. Okay, he's got his information. So he summons the magi back, okay? He wants to get more information. He wants to pull out some more information from them, okay? And he wants to give them some instructions. So look at verses seven and eight. Verse 7 and say, say this, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had approached. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search, with, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You see, Herod had figured out where now. The prophecy told him where. Now he wanted to know the When? When was this child born? He assumes, okay, the star must have first appeared then. Whenever it appeared, that's when the child was born. So he's doing the math in his head. Okay, it took these guys this long, probably four months to get here. So, so, okay. so he's trying to figure out when this child was born. And he then tells the Magi to go and search for him and let him know where they find him so he can go and worship him. Sounds like a really kind of, uh, uh, kind of fishy for a guy who was extremely jealous about and insecure about his rule, wanting to know, hey, tell him, let me know, so I can go and I want to go worship him too. We obviously know that's not true. You see, Herod sees this child as a total threat to his throne. So he figures if he can pinpoint the exact time and location of when the time when this thing first appeared, he assumes that he can determine the exact age of the child. That's what he's looking for. And we're going to see in next week's text... Another kind of Christmas-ish type of of text. The real reason Herod wanted to know the exact age and location of the child. So he he wanted to be able to clearly identify this child. Not so that he could go worship him. So that he could what? Kill him. That would be nothing for him. Nothing from what we know about him. So he, that was his sole purpose of wanting to find out more. So he could kill this child. 
The reality is that when we learn to, to speak truth into our, own, into our own lives, we won't be, we live in fear. The result is we learn to speak the powerful truth of God's word against our insecurities like, like he was not willing to do. We will more and more experience the positive results of our faith, the positive results of stepping out in faith. Let me ask you, what insecurities do you need to turn over to the Lord so that you can turn, respond to him in faith? Respond to his amazing grace in faith. Because if you're anything like me, I'll see his grace and I'll want to respond and I'll go, hmm. that's so easy to do. But he wants us to give those insecurities to him. Invite him to be a part of what's going on in our life, to push us to be able to experience incredible results of their faith. And we're going to see some of those right now. Because this, is, this, last, this last section here we see from the story is the Magi actually experienced the positive results of their faith. Now we get to see, okay, what's the point of this? What does it actually look like? So here's the last section. We're going to read this whole last section, verses 9 through 11. We see what happens when the wise men leave Herod, again, to go follow this star where Jesus is. It says this, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we see from the verse, these verses that this star that once guided them from the east now guides them south about six miles, okay? And it takes them to Bethlehem where it no longer moves. See, this star had been moving along the skyline to guide them. Now it comes to rest over a place, over a house, it says here. It comes to rest over the very house where they can find this child. Now, at first glance, this seems to contradict the accounts that we hear, like especially where Luke says, where Mary gave birth to her firstborn child, you know, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the inn. After all, that's what all our Christmas stories say, and that's what all the manger scenes look like, right? That's where it had to happen. Um, you see these people kneeling with all the animals all around. Well, there's two really likely explanations. Real quick, I'll just throw them at you. Uh, one is that very soon after the birth, after he was born, Jesus and his family, they were able to move out of this stable into a place to stay. So that's, that's, that's one of the options. The other explanation is that Jesus was born in a normal peasant home where mangers would be found. Not in a separate building. They'd be in the same house or a cave where they live, but they would be what they would be, not separate, but they'd be on the edge of their home, like they would have a one big one-room home, and kind of down in the lower part, the animals they would bring in, and that's where they would stay, and there would be a manger there. You know what? It's not a hill to die on. We don't, we don't know. So we have to look at the manger scene and go, hey, that's, you know, don't go to the, you know, what's the big thing coming up in Bethlehem AD down in Redwoods. Don't go there. Hey, this is wrong. Um, no, Paul will be there spinning his, making pots and everything. Um, 
But that doesn't matter. None of that matters. Either way, in verse 10, what we see is one, the first result. I'm just going to show it to you, to you too. The first result of the Magi's faith, stepping out in faith, it says, when they saw the star the second time, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, is that, that's kind of a weird, we don't talk that way. I'm exceedingly joyful with great joy. And I'm like, yeah, that, that just, okay, enough. I hear what you're saying. But literally what that means when the, in that translation back then, they were saying, here's what it really actually means. They experienced joy that was very, very excessively joyful. That's what that means. It's joy that was very, very excessively joyful. These guys were thrilled. Okay, they were absolutely thrilled beyond belief because they now know that this long quest that they have been on was not in vain. We did the right thing. We're here. Their faith resulted in tremendous joy. They were thrilled. What a great lesson this is for you and I that when we respond to God's gift of grace, in, in our lives, we respond in faith and not in fear. The result is this joy, and we can even say this joy that is very, very exceedingly joyful. Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever stepped out? God's moving in your life. God is doing something. He showed his grace to you, and you step out in faith and move, and you just go, oh, I didn't expect this. And it's just so wonderful. What a great lesson this is from the Magi. When we step out, we go, God, you've given me so much. Your grace is amazing. I need to respond. Even in, this is scary. And we do it, and it's like, I remember, um, it's not in my notes, sorry, guys. Um, but um, I think I might have even told you the story. When I was younger, when I, my faith kind of really came alive, when I was 18, 19 years old, we used to, I lived in Redondo Beach, and we used to, we thought, okay, you know what? We're just blown away by how God has given us what he's done for us. This is amazing. So we would go down, we would meet, about four or five of us would meet at the Redondo Beach. Well, we'd meet at our church first. And we'd have all, remember tracks? You'd give out those tracks all the time, you know, back in the day that, that talked about how to become a Christian, all that stuff. We had just ordered hundreds of them. You know, we were just crazy out of control. And so we, we ordered these things, stuffed them in our jacket pockets. We prayed at the church. We know God wants us to, because to, we were already sharing with our friends. We thought we got to share with strangers now. It's what you do, right? It was the 70s or the 80s. We, this is what we do. So we got out there. We would stuff our jackets. We'd drive down there listening to Christian music, Petra or something like that. You know, we'd drive, we'd drive down there. Um, and we'd get to the pier. We'd park. We'd start sweating. And then we'd go, we got to go pray some more. So we'd go under the pier. So we'd go under the pier and we'd pray. We'd pray, okay, God, just give us, you know, just, we don't care what I'm just, so we would go and we'd go around talking to people. I know most people, they'd just come out of restaurant and things like that. Hey, you know, we just want to share with you the, the love that Jesus, we found in Christ. We'd like to share that with you. This was back in the day when we used to do that a lot. You know, remember back in the day, that's how you witness to people. You didn't get, need, you didn't need to know them. You just need to give them information. Um, but we, so we did that and we were scared. We were especially scared when we meet former friends from high school school that we would see. We go, oh my gosh, you know, and we know, okay, we can't avoid them. We have to go see them. And we'd talk to them about it. And usually the response was always pretty positive. One time a guy had a gun and he had a gun right here. And we said, hey, we're here to tell you about Jesus. We had to the morning. He goes, I got something for you. And we were just like, oh, well, you know what? And we just, I remember we all, we felt this sense of, you know what? We're just here sharing the love of Christ. And he, and he goes, oh, okay, that's cool. I got to tell you, every time we left and we would get down in, 
Never prayed with one person to receive Christ, okay? But we would go, we'd be done. We'd go down and get in our car. I got to tell you, I don't think the wheels touched the ground on the way home. And it wasn't because we were speeding. We were so excited. I mean, we were experiencing joy that was very, very excessively joyful. Because we knew that God's grace was so big, we needed to respond. And that was one of the ways we felt to respond. We needed to share our faith, even though we were scared to death to do it. That's what the Magi teach. That's one thing that the Magi experienced. Second result of the Magi's faith in God's gift of grace was that they worshiped. Okay, we, they even said at the very beginning, we've come to worship him. With their search over, the Magi now do what they came to do. They worship the king. Now, can you imagine these wealthy, probably older, sophisticated guys that had climbed the top of the occult ladder or whatever, and they were, they were the guys. Kings would call on them to give them advice and, to, and show them, tell them what to do. And here they are in this ordinary, whether it was a stable or an old poor person's clay home, here they are prostrate on the ground giving gifts that were fit for a king. Luxury gifts. These guys are probably decked out in their robes. Can you just picture it in your mind for a second? They're responding in faith. I don't think they even know the extent of what's going on. They just know that they need to do that, and they just begin to worship. This is the result of responding to God's gift of grace with faith. It's all out worship of our king. When we begin to grasp God's, how amazing God's gift of grace truly is, this undeserved, unmerited, I didn't, I, I didn't do anything to get this, but look what I got. We can't help but worship him, right? We just can't help it. Don't you just love it when that happens? When you see or you experience God's grace or you sense God's grace and goodness in your life and you're compelled to worship God from the deepest part of who you are? Oh my God, nobody said amen there. Have you ever had that? It's amazing, isn't it amazing? Isn't that amazing when you're sensing, and you're not worshiping because, okay, they're starting the slideshow now. No, you're worshiping just on your own because you're sensing, oh my gosh, God's grace is so amazing. I need to respond and you respond by this worship that just wells up out of your heart. To worship God, so you know, to worship God means to put the supreme worth of God on display for all to see. That's what worship is. It's, it's putting the supreme worth of God on display for all to see. Even if you're by yourself, I'm just going to... Most of the time we worship live by ourselves. Some of my, be- my best worship time always happens by myself, by the way. I've told some of you people, I go up Higgins, Higgins Road. That's my, I hike up there, put the worship music on, cry half the way. Recognizing how good God is. I love what John Piper, John Piper describes worship this way. He says, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God 
treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in the demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love and serving others for the sake of Christ. That's worship. That's what happens when we respond in faith to God's amazing gift of grace. So finally, we see that the, the wise men, they're warned in a dream that Herod, uh, that they, to go somewhere else, don't tell Herod, just go somewhere else. Go, go home a different direction. Once again, God uses something significant for them, something that they understood, terms that they understood in order to communicate to them. I want to encourage you as we close here. I just really want to encourage you. I want to encourage you as God reveals this unmerited, undeserved favor to you, and as it prompts you to share your faith, to forgive someone that has completely wronged you, who doesn't deserve it at all, or to, and to move out of your comfort zone in order to experience deeper and richer walk with him, respond in faith, step out, be willing to say, I will, I'll jump into the desert and I'll walk, not knowing exactly where it's going. But God, your grace is so good. I gotta do something. I have to. The truth is that fear is often, is often our go-to response because of our sinful nature. It just is. But the more we recognize God's grace in our lives, and the more we will step out then in faith, and then the more we will experience joy, one more time, joy that is very, very excessively joyful. And we will also enjoy our worship. I want to challenge you this week, ask God to reveal to you his gift of grace, and then respond in faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for your gift of grace. It's, I, I bet if we sat and just started making lists of the ways that you have poured your grace upon us, it would be long. First, obviously, for salvation, for saving us, for, for sending your son to die to pay the penalty of our sin and our rebellion so that we could have this open, loving, lifetime, eternal relationship with our Abba Father, our Daddy. Thank you. May you strengthen us. Show us how to walk in faith as we experience your incredible gift of grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up and we'll close.